As was mentioned already, we again have been granted an opportunity and a privilege to assemble on this afternoon, this early evening, if you please. And as we do so, to give homage and worship and praise to the great God of heaven who has made it possible this day. As we're able to gather, we're certainly thankful to God to have given us this opportunity. And it's our trust that as we sing and pray and do the other things that He has commanded, that our worship will be pleasing and it will be acceptable in His sight. As you might have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson tonight has reference to the number 11. And it is to that particular number we'll give some thought this evening. As we do that, giving some thought and appreciation to that particular number in the Scriptures, perhaps some words of introduction, some words that are of outset at the lesson might well be in order. It's amazing, isn't it, the place that Christ serves in your life and in mine. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul lifted so high the banner of the Christ. And particularly in verse number 9 and 10, he asserted the fact that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul so lovingly wanted more than anything else to know Him, that is Christ, and to live in such a way that Christ would be pleased with Him. And as that might well be and should be the desire of us tonight, Let's give some thought to the character of the number 11. Numbers are so often found in the Bible. We well remember everything from the fact that there is one God to the fact that there were ten commandments to the frequent occurrence of 40 days. Numbers like those appear so often on the biblical stage. And in fact, you can even mention virtually every number between them and even beyond. But tonight, the time will permit us merely to look at the number 11. And as that number is found in the Scriptures, it occurs in some places that have really great lessons for you and for me to appreciate. Oddly enough, the number 11 doesn't occur all that many times in the Scriptures. In fact, there are only a total of 24. As you look at the distribution of them, some 18 of those 24 are found in the Old Testament the remaining six of them are found within the pages of the New Testament. And even beyond that, the occurrences of them to some extent are even more restricted than that. Because on some occasions, that number 11 is merely a reference to a portion of the number 1100. As for example in Judges chapter 16 and 17. So for example, explicitly in regard to the number 11, there are fewer occurrences than 24. In particular, you might note that many of those are with respect to a particular numbering of something. For example, in Exodus 26, for example, there were 11 curtains, a part of that tabernacle that God commanded the ancient children of Israel to, to construct and to build. Thus, the number 11 on that occasion was just the number of curtains that were to be a part of that particular aspect of the tabernacle. Furthermore, in Joshua 15, there's a reference to a particular region in which 11 cities were specifically mentioned. Even beyond that, you might remember two of the kings of the Old Testament both reigned for precisely 11 years. One of them was Zedekiah, the other was Jehoiakim. All of those instances merely present to us facts in which the number 11 had a role to play on the biblical presentation. If you subtract all of them and I ask what about the remaining usages of the number 11, we shall find that there are two really that remain that are so interesting in terms of their applications for us. I would invite you then to journey with me as we look at the number 11. 
One of these occurrences will be in the Old Testament and one of them will be found in the New Testament. As we begin to look at these two, let's first start with that initial one within the pages of the Old Testament. It takes us back to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. It was on that interesting scene of events. You and I might well recall that there by that point was this gentleman known as Jacob. He was the son of Isaac as well as the grandson of Abraham. And as we come to study or at least reflect upon the issues of his life, we find that by the time we reach chapter number 37 of Genesis, Jacob had already experienced so many things in life. He by that point had gone the distant way. You might remember to be protected from the fearfulness of, of his brother Esau. But by this point he had returned and they had reconciled. By this point he had many children. Ultimately he would have one daughter and twelve boys. And as we come to recognize the scene of events here, we seem to find eleven of them will be mentioned as we look at the scene of Genesis chapter 37, here's a quick overview or summary of some of what we had seen. First of all, Joseph. By this point, Joseph, one of his sons was aged 17. And Joseph at this point was one who was greatly an irritant to his brothers. By that I mean his older brothers. You might recall that Jacob had such fondness for Joseph that he made him, as the text describes it, a coat of many colors. It was a very special garment. It was one in which he was singled out as a special favorite of his father. Furthermore, we notice as the chapter unfolds that his brothers hated him. They were greatly despised of the fact that dad showed to Joseph the fact of that coat of many colors, that special garment that he wore, while they themselves were not so blessed in that way, they were not father's favorite. We begin to notice in verse number 5 that the tension between Joseph and his brothers was so tense that they were even unable to speak peaceably to him. The text describes it as if there was not even a common brotherly conversation between Joseph and his brothers. As the scene proceeds in that chapter, we next find that Joseph had a dream. God in that ancient day communicated and often gave forth matters in the context of dreams. Joseph had a dream in which he and his brothers were in the field taking care of the sheaves, and their sheaves stood up, but all of their sheaves bowed before his. And when Joseph told that to his brothers, they even became angrier at him. Do you mean we are supposed to bow before you? Are we supposed to serve you? Are you going to rule and reign over us? That was simply beyond their ability to fathom. And in their anger and in their frustration with him, we notice that they not only asked him about it, but the text says they hated him. We notice, though, that he had another dream. In this particular dream... We notice that Joseph even dreamed that not only did the stars, but also the sun and the moon did obeisance to him. At this point, even his father became concerned. Are your mother and I also to bow before you? Are your brothers as well to do obeisance and in fact obey you? The text says that Jacob rebuked Joseph. He actually attempted to correct him in that manner and the text goes on to say in verse 11 that his brothers envied him. There was within them a spirit of great antagonism toward their brother. There was in them a spirit of envy, a spirit of jealousy, a spirit of hatred. 
at this point, might we notice just a few of the thoughts that might be noted? Because at this point, the record becomes very familiar. Jacob sent Joseph to see about the brothers on one occasion. They were tending the flocks at some distance from where, in fact, Jacob was living. And as Joseph was sent to them, he inquired in the city of Shechem as to where they might be, and he learned that they had gone to Dothan recently. As Joseph from a distance came to Dothan, the brothers noticed that he was coming in a distance, and they conspired against him, the text says. They actually made plans. They made arrangements. Their first thought was to kill him and to tell dad and everyone else a wild animal had consumed him. However, the oldest brother Reuben desired that that not take place, so he calmed them at least in regard to that thought. He simply encouraged them to cast him into a pit. However, while Reuben apparently was away, they sold Joseph, sold him to a band of Midianites who were headed off to Egypt. The hatred felt by these brothers, the envy and jealousy had boiled to the point that they were even willing to, and in fact did, sell their own flesh and blood off into those who perhaps would take, them far, take him far away and they would never see him again. It may be as hard to fully imagine that degree of frustration, that degree of hatred, that degree of ill will toward their brother, but they did it. As you and I recognize near the bottom of that slide, off to Egypt he went and for many years they simply thought that he was gone, that they had done away with him. It is at that point though that some observations might be in order for us. Since we know that most of the rest of the book of Genesis is a reflection on how that record ended, they did finally go to Egypt and though they didn't recognize him at first, they did bow before him because they were desirous of the grain that he had to offer to protect and preserve them. But as we come back to this scene of Genesis 37, maybe it's time to note these two lessons at least. First of all, these sets of difficulties that had themselves presented in the lives of those brothers, the character of these 11, if you please, you'll notice that the evil of selling him, ultimately it would clearly seem sprang from roots that were in fact from Jacob himself. Jacob showed favoritism among those children. He made that coat of many colors, that special garment as the text describes it. And the Bible makes no secret to the fact that Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And Joseph was his favorite. We as parents do a great disservice to our families, to our children, if we particularly lift one up as a favorite among all of them. God has blessed us with children. If there be more than one of them, we should understand the fact that we must never provoke them to anger in that regard, Colossians 3.21. We must never and so conduct ourselves toward them to lift up one above the others and thus rage in that one an appreciation of frustration, ill will, and anger. We are not by any means trying to excuse the behavior of the brothers, but it certainly started with Dad. He ought not to have had the favorite in the way that he did. And the Old Testament even condemns that kind of behavior. Read with me, if you would, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. On that occasion, we learn something tremendous about God's viewpoint on matters like that one. Again, Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 15. 
If a man have two wives, one beloved and the other hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn over the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. God seemingly recognized in Israel that it would be a temptation in that ancient stage in time in which it might be that given the situation of some men who did as God would not have approved but had more than one wife and if the one loved less actually bore the eldest that there might be a temptation in fact to make the other the firstborn. God said that mustn't take place. There is not to be that instance of overlooking the fact of what transpired and the eldest is to be the firstborn. Might we notice the evil that was brought about by this matter of favoritism in this instance, in the family. Oh, what difficulty it caused later as those brothers looked with such hatred and with such envy upon Joseph. We do remember that God overlooked in all this circumstance and ultimately brought it about to bring about their protection. But oh, what difficulty came about along the way. The text indicates that for years those brothers had a conscience that bothered them. What they had done to Joseph. The fact they had lied to their father, letting him believe that a wild animal had killed Joseph. All the while they knew that wasn't the case. Later in Genesis You'll notice particularly the thought is that they themselves were convicted by way of conscience for what they had done many, many years earlier in the selling of Joseph. Today, as we give thought to what can happen in a family, or even otherwise, when inappropriate favoritism like that is shown, it is somewhat amazing what seeds of difficulty that can bring about in years to come. It can lead to the siblings, of course, as we've seen here, not getting along very well. It may even lead to a rift between various of the siblings and the parents. It may lead to difficulties even in other ways between those siblings and other instances or even in their later family. The thought of all of that challenges us that this matter of partiality, this issue of favoritism often can lead to such harm. Not only in the family, but one of the latter parts there even has to do with the church. It can be a tempting thing always, I suppose, for us to, in fact, have matters of favoritism. But in the church, it mustn't be so either. For instance, the Word of God reaches and touches all of us. I'm not exempted, nor is any of you. None of us are. When it comes to dealing with matters, even in our physical families, the Word of God touches all of us. When the elders, of course, take care of the matters that God has given them by way of duty and responsibility, they too are not to be governed by or led by matters of partiality. In 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul on that occasion, again writing to Timothy, said, Let nothing be done in partiality. Sometimes as the church throughout the years has gone about its work, the element of partiality that has been raised has caused no small amount of difficulty 
when one person or one family senses that matters were done differently with someone else, that things were brought about in a different way, that matters were handled completely differently, when they wonder why and there's no good reason for it, then they can't help but wonder, was partiality at work? And if so, what does that mean about the way that things are going to be done in the future? In James, the second chapter, James encouraged all of us in regard to one of the ways that, again, this can rear its rather ugly head. We understand that we live in a world in which quite often money talks. There are those whose heads are turned by money. There are those whose heads are turned by what others can do for them by way of wealth and by way of, shall we say, contribution. But yet when James wrote in James the second chapter, he reminded all of us that if a rich man and a poor man come into the assembly and we invite the rich man to sit in a rather honored place, but we are quite happy for the poor man to sit near the back, we have erred. And in that sense, we're guilty of error and of sin. And James reminded us that such things ought not be so in the kingdom of the Lord. Whether it thus be at Pippin or whether it be at other congregations, isn't it the case that partiality can wreak such havoc and it can, of course, bring about such evil? But even beyond that, perhaps another lesson. Speaking of the evil that we've seen on this occasion, the Old Testament on this occasion does notice for us that the sentiment expressed by those older brothers was that of hatred. They had come by way of the nature of Joseph's feeling or the, his father's presentation of him. They had come to hate Joseph. That's the word the text uses in verse 5. As they had come to hate him, it reminds us about the evil that comes along with the thought of hatred. Some of the verses that I would invite you to notice would be the meaning on this occasion. As nearly as I'm able to understand it, that Hebrew word there that's translated hatred, it means to be intensely red. You can just imagine that a red sensation came over them as they even looked at Joseph. They had come to detest him. They had come to have such ill will toward him, to have such a feeling of disgust relative to the position he occupied in front of their father. That ill will had come to the point they, as we've noted earlier, were very willing to even sell him. We're reminded in the Bible that our feeling of hatred is completely right in certain ways. For instance, when Amos wrote, hate the evil and love the good, certainly we are well aware that just like God, we are to hate evil in any form it appears and in whatever way it comes before us. We should detest it, loathe it, desire to in fact improve the circumstance if possible. But we notice that when it comes to individuals, what about hating an individual? We seem to see in the world more than once that individuals seem to be prompted at least every now and then by ultimate hatred for someone else. What does the Bible say about that kind of hatred? Maybe at the very bottom, we come to think of it this way. In 1 John, the fourth chapter, we notice that there are texts that read as follows. In verse number 8 of that chapter, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We learn, first of all, that God is not a God of hatred. He doesn't hate individuals. He hates sin completely. But He's there described so greatly as a God that is of goodness and a God that is, of course, of love. Twelve verses later in verse number 20, 
we notice a rather haunting question. If we say, I love God, but hate our brother, the text directly says, you are a liar. How can it be, the text asks, that you can claim to love God that you have never seen, but yet claim to hate your brother who you have seen? The text says that is an impossibility. We thus, if we hate our brother, we do not love God. And in that situation, and in that circumstance, we thus are guilty of sin if we hate our brother. Jesus reminded us even in Matthew the 5th chapter that we are to be one who loves our enemies, certainly not one that hates them. In verse 21 of 1 John 4, the last verse of that chapter, we are reminded that we love Him because He first loved us, of course, but that that love should emanate in regard to love for others. We then notice this lesson perhaps challenges us so greatly that there is a great evil that corresponds to hatred. When we have reached the point that hatred fills our heart toward another person, we have sunken greatly from the kind of person that God would wish us to be. We are not a person motivated with the incentive of a loving character, with a desire for the betterment of welfare of others. We're motivated, you see, by ultimately that which is of murder. John describes it in those words in the third chapter of 1 John. None of us wish to be thought of in that way, but yet if we hate our brother, we in essence are guilty of murder. Those kinds of thoughts challenge us that on this earlier occasion when the number 11, if you please, was there and utilized, we find so tremendously that there are great lessons even for us continuing till this day. There is, of course, another usage of that number 11, and this one is one we'll turn to next. This one is, of course, in the New Testament, and it served as the reading that was read for us a few moments ago. In Mark chapter 16, verse 14, for example, we find one usage of that number 11. And on that occasion, of course, it had reference to a certain subset of the apostles. To rehearse briefly, we remember the Lord chose 12 apostles. As He did that, sadly and tragically, but yet by His own choice, Judas came to remove himself from the number because he took his life. Judas committed suicide. He hanged himself in Matthew chapter 27, as the record tells us. And at that point, that left us with but 11 apostles, at least for a while, until a replacement was appointed in Acts chapter 1. During that time when the 11 were thus mentioned, we find again some lessons that might be beneficial and helpful to us. Here are some references to those 11. First of all, we notice in Luke 24, references made to the fact that those two that had walked on the road to Emmaus, when they came to realize that it was the Savior with whom they spoke, they turned and raced back, if you please, to Jerusalem, and there they shared with the eleven what it was that had transpired. The number eleven. Perhaps another example you might notice is that Jesus appeared to the eleven. And as He did so in the text before us this evening, I would invite you to reread it with me. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse number 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward He appeared, that means the Lord appeared, unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen Him after He was risen. 
The eleven on that occasion, we are told, were such that the Lord rebuked them. He upbraided them. He challenged them. And the text puts it in language like this. He upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. These apostles had been with Jesus for so long. They had observed Him. They'd watched Him work miracles. They had observed the character of His preaching. They had listened to it. And they had heard Him say that I will in fact be killed, but on the third day I shall be resurrected. Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. They had heard the Lord preach those matters. And now when there were individuals that testified He had been raised, they did not believe. The women that had gone to the sepulcher early on that Lord's Day morning, they found the tomb empty and the stone, of course, had been rolled away. And when they came back and told them, the disciples didn't believe it. Now the two on the road to Emmaus, when they came back and shared the fact, we have spoken with the Lord, we've talked with Him, He is indeed risen, the eleven didn't believe it. It was on that occasion, the text again says, that Jesus upbraided them. That word upbraid means to reprove. It means to rebuke. The Lord stepped on their toes, if you please, because He got on to them. They did not hear and to believe the message of His resurrection. The word unbelief is clearly what is there employed. He rebuked them, upbraided them because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart. They thought, and they were still under the impression that the kingdom was to be a physical one. And in that way, they were not willing to accept and believe their heart was still so unwilling to bend. It was still of that hard character. Jesus upbraided them. Maybe that brings us to this first lesson. Unbelief. We often think about those apostles as great defenders of the faith, and in time they were. And we think about the character of what they became. But on this occasion, the Lord rebuked them because of their unbelief. They were not always of that stalwart character of defense as they were somewhat later. Unbelief. Some thoughts about that might challenge us like this. Surely we might commend them for, because they didn't defect when Judas did. When Judas made his decision to betray Jesus, when he made his choice to accept money as a bribe, some of them might have been persuaded to go along with it, but they didn't. We must at least compliment them there, but their belief on this occasion was not what God would have wanted. Is your belief in mine what God would prefer? Is it what He has demanded? The challenge in regard to this expectation might well point us in this direction. They didn't believe the evidence. The word of mouth given by virtue of the Lord's resurrection... Sometimes are you and I unwilling to believe the evidence that's put before us? Perhaps we notice something in the Scriptures, and we know the world is ever good at rationalizing its way around it. The world is good sometimes at turning a blind eye to various and sundry matters that are of, of a personal challenge. But yet we notice that God doesn't approve us in that. We mustn't rationalize. We must obey. We must do that which the Lord has commanded. Their unbelief on this occasion was a mark against them. It is true. Several days later, on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were overwhelmed as they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they rose and preached with boldness on that day of Pentecost. 
from what the scriptural record indicates, from that point forward, their boldness was the guiding thought to their life. They were no longer given to unbelief. They were given to belief. And they were given to action that follows that belief. Perhaps as we give thought to that matter in this issue, perhaps these additional comments are in order. You and I too should be always cautious, of course, when it comes to the matters of the church and to the matters of faith. We are urged and reminded to prove all things and hold to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 As you and I prove all things, there then comes a point when upon investigation and upon proof, if that which we discover is matched in the Word of God, then we must proceed at once with it. There's no longer the time for hesitancy. There's no longer the time to question. Because of that, doesn't it lead us to see that there is a time to prove, but then there's a time to cling to it. There's a time to hold to it. It is a marvelous thing to give thought to Matthew 7 verse 20. Jesus did say there, "...ye shall know them by their fruits." When we investigate and we appreciate the matters that come about in the lives of an individual and we discover that fruits, of course, are known with respect thereto, we then are easy of a position to know as we judge in accordance to the Word of God. In John 7, 24, we're told to judge righteous judgment. Those thoughts help us see that unbelief ought to give way to faith in us. And as that faith is characterized by our obedience, how lovingly powerful that certainly can be in your life and in mine. I suppose that does bring us to this second lesson of this section. The happy thought of the overcoming nature of these apostles. On this occasion, they were upbraided due to their unbelief. But as we noted a moment ago, how believing they were not too many days in the future. Though once they had this impression that the Lord's kingdom was to be a physical one, Acts 1 verse 6, that soon gave way to a clear and perfect understanding of the fact that the Lord's kingdom is not of this world, John 18 36. And they knew then and there and from that day forward that the greatest of the kingdoms, of course, of all is that great kingdom that would never be destroyed, Daniel, Daniel 2 44. That kingdom is the church and they gave their lives in most instances in respect to its cause. This very day, you and I are still the recipients of this grand thought of overcoming. The world no doubt looked upon these apostles with such a note of negativity in many cases. In Acts 4.13, in fact, there were those who directly pointed to them and said, these are ignorant and unlearned men. They haven't been schooled properly. What, what rabbinical school did they attend? How did they come to know these things? But yet in boldness they testified of those things which they knew, those things that they had seen, those matters that had been revealed to them by the God of heaven. And they boldly gave their lives in defense of that and oh, what great things they wrought in that first century era. And of course, by inspiration for all of us to this day too. They overcame in that regard, and so too may we. For when the difficulties of life surround us, when matters attack us on every hand, and from time to time, Satan will almost surely make it so. He will cause things to occur that may cause doubts, that may cause within us internal uncomfort and internal strife. 
May we understand we too, upon the foundation of that which the Scriptures have declared, we too can overcome. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. For isn't it still true from Jeremiah 10, 23? O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. When those apostles from Acts chapter 2 onward thus left their personal reflections in the dust and gave their attention to the Master. Oh, what a change was wrought within them. We see Paul a bit later, though he wasn't one of the original twelve. He was one who was reckoned and called as an apostle, and he himself could say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them also that love His appearing. Those apostles, they are mentioned as a group in Ephesians, the second chapter. And in verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, they are described as a portion of the foundation on which the early church was founded. Today, in a sense, in that sense, we still are the beneficiaries of their degree of belief and the fact that they overcome. The joy and wonder that associates to those lessons seems to quickly tell us that from that day onward, that day of Pentecost onward, they never forgot those great lessons of overcoming. Today, when difficulties surround you and surround me, may we approach them in the proper and right way. And we do that not by resting upon what we simply believe and think, but always that belief must be guided by the Scriptures must be directed in accordance to it. And because of that, we then can rest assured that judgments that are made, conclusions that are reached, will be due to a thus saith the Lord, and not due to personal belief or personal reflection or even personal opinion. Our opinions, as we've noticed here, whether it be in our study of Joseph or whether our study of those apostles, when the number 11 was used in these ways, it had within it some things that were negative, like the envy and hatred of Joseph's brothers. But it also had within it some things that were positive, such as the overcoming nature of these 11. They did not fully give up, but you see, they did select a replacement for Judas. And on that day of Pentecost, all of them proclaimed the truth of God. This evening, as we come near the conclusion to this lesson... It might be fair to note just a few final thoughts about the number 11. We have looked at all of the major occurrences tonight, at least in passing, of the number 11 as it has occurred in the Bible. And in each of these instances, we've noted some of the things have challenged us in ways to improve ourselves, but also some of these ways have reminded us of what error can be wrought in this world when it is governed by the evil of envy and that of hatred. Tonight, do you love the Lord? If you do, we might note Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. We, in fact, are liars if we claim to love Him, but yet don't keep His commandments, for we really don't love Him. And in 1 John 5, verse 3, we read on that occasion, His commandments are not grievous. We know they challenge us in ways that are right and in ways that are proper. And they challenge us in ways that lead to everlasting life. This evening, as we think about the number 11, among the other numbers that might be discussed in terms of a lesson, we've looked at only the number 11, and in it we've seen some things that we should leave behind, be that hatred or envy, and some things to which we must cleave 
such as belief and triumph and overcoming character. Are you strong tonight for the Lord? On Sunday morning, we noted the question Moses asked in Exodus 32, Who is on the Lord's side? Can you and I answer that with a very confident yes? If we can't, tonight's the night to make a change and come over to the Lord's side. In Matthew chapter 25, there is a description of a division. On that great day when all nations shall be gathered before Him, we are told that there will be some that will be separated onto His left, others will be put onto His right. And as the Lord addresses each one of those in turn, He first addresses those on the right and so powerfully asserts to them many things in life you did. And you did it in the interest of serving me. He welcomed them into the great kingdom, of course, everlastingly of the Lord. But when He addressed those on the left, oh, what an awful anguish we almost hear within them when they hear Him say, I was sick. I was in prison, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was naked, and you did nothing to meet my needs. And inasmuch for that reason, off into everlasting punishment, you are now sentenced to go. You and I surely would want to be on the right. We surely would want to be numbered amongst the ones who are told in verse 46 to go into everlasting life. This very night, is your name on the side for everlasting life, or is it on the side for eternal punishment? If it's not on the Lord's side, and if you have never obeyed His name initially, you're commanded by Him to believe in Him as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Turn aside from them to do them no more. Then confess Him. In the hearing of others that they too may know the deepest thought of your heart, you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and then simply and humbly be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. The baptismal waters behind me are ready. All things are prepared. If you would wish for that change to be wrought in you this very night, why not tonight? If you have become a member of the Lord's body, but faithfulness at this point is not yours, you have not lived as you ought to have, and you understand that fact. Perhaps thoughts of envy, jealousy, hatred, other kinds of public matters have marred and tarnished and clouded what you once knew you could be and what you still can. Why not make that right tonight? We could pray with you, for you. And in that way, God has promised upon your repentance and confession to forgive you. If tonight we could be of assistance in either of those ways, prayers of strength or otherwise, this hymn of encouragement has been chosen, and if we can be of assistance, why not even now, while together we stand and while we sing?